0: Noble metal. Jorge Gallego scraped a remnant of cream cheese from its plastic tub and applied it piteously to a stale, untoasted bagel. He drained the ultimate ounces from a carton of orange juice. Resolving to visit a grocery store, Jorge began compiling a mental shopping list when a rapping sounded from the entrance to his duplex apartment. He stepped away from his meager breakfast and his untidy kitchen. Opening the front door a cautious fraction, Jorge saw two men who looked like skinheads but with shirts and ties. He conjectured they might belong to a ska band. Good morning, sir. May we share a message with you about your soul? One of them asked. My soul? Your spirit, sir. Are you spiritually inert? Would you like to know how your very life essence can be activated? In his pocket, Jorge discreetly thumbed on a micro-cassette recorder. He carried it at all times to capture sounds and fragments of speech. He knew this could get interesting i've always felt my life essence could be you know less inert said jorge curious what sublimely deranged palaver would be laid on him do come in thank you jorge we'd really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you jorge opened the door as the strangers passed inside he realized he had not offered them his name angie swept her nose-length bangs to one side her hair had reached its adolescence that unruly stage between short and long. She affixed a barrette glistening with a single rhinestone. Angie hoped it would affect aesthetic intent to be viewed as a singular accessory of minimalist fashion. She had restored very little of her possessions, wardrobe, makeup, or jewelry, since returning to normal society. This was partly due to lack of means, but she had also enjoyed having no possessions, or little more than would fit in a backpack. Lucette knocked on the doorframe, a charade of civility in the tiny apartment. It was least in her name, after all. I'm off to work. Good luck with your résumé. Lucette trilled the R a bit hatefully for Angie's taste. Much of Lou's personality glowed with a pink neon announcement that she was half French, a tempering of the obvious pigmentary contribution of her father. This rattle of the tongue chided Angie about the last three times she had proffered a fine plan to go to the copy shop and print a stack of curricula vitae. Each time, she was still home when Lou returned in the afternoon, An impassive ruminant of Goodwill and Triscuits. Lou was trying to be sympathetic to Angie's recent ordeals and she was not usually around long enough to start an argument. After her lunch shift at an emphatically authentic neighborhood bistro, Lou was typically off to an evening rehearsal with an alternative dance company. There she practiced a vibrant blend of ballet and street moves. Her own Creole, one could say, but Lou would object, reminding one her mother is French French, not some coon-ass from down I-10. Adieu, Lulu, Angie replied captiously. The apartment door fussed with its hinge creaks and lock scrapes. Angie was alone with her reflection. They exhaled heavily at each other. Today, when Lou popped in to exchange apron and toque for a juste Angie would be gone. She looked in her own eyes and affirmed this. I will print 100 resumes today. I will boldly offer them to potential employers. She tried a more honest affirmation. I will go to the library and peruse books of Renaissance paintings for an hour while Lou comes back and invent another excuse why I haven't found a job yet. The tub faucet tauntingly plipped at her in the silence. I will watch Jerry Springer and fall asleep on the couch. Plip. Sitting on the couch, also her bed, Angie pulled on her eight-hole docks, summoning strength with each tug of the worn laces. She couldn't keep mooching off Lucette this way. She must find a job, a good one. She needed to get her own place again. Angie stood and pressed her face to a small mirror by the door. Resumes, bitch. Go now. Grabbing her backpack, she ran out of the apartment. The humid Houston morning enveloped Angie like some unsolicited drunken embrace. She walked a few blocks to the copy shop, a fledgling amalgam of copy shop, coffee bar, and internet cafe. Angie checked the dwindling supply of cash Lou had lent her, rationing herself one hour at a computer station plus the copies. Angie's frustration with her present lot lashed within her. She resented Lou for not being more helpful. She wasn't making rent slinging crepes and creme brulee for those River Oaks housewives with their shopping bags and tennis firm calves. Innovative body movement was not keeping the lights on. It was Lou's parents' money, after all. A bracing coffee aroma brought Angie back to herself. Maybe she would indulge. Just a plain one. Not one of the frothy concoctions the tattooed cloud of patchouli behind the counter would try to upsell her on. She had become accustomed to unadorned foods, tea plain and coffee black. Seasonings were not pure. Her first experience with Tabasco after two years was nearly anaphylactic. Angie approached the counter, greeted by a boy her age. A 22-year-old should be called a man, but that depended on his behavior. Angie was not sure if his neat haircut was a factor in ranking above the other listless youths steaming milk or collating sales reports behind him. Perhaps it was a symptom of truly responsible leanings, but he was cued and she decided to think of him as a boy, nonetheless. His name tag said, J.J. Welcome to the copy shop. How can I help you? asked J.J. briskly. What's the third E for? Um, email? Oh, I don't have one of those. A guy who probably played bass swore as he pulled an accordion sheet of cardstock from an elephantine hunk of office machinery. J.J. turned to him. Chad, that one only does bond. You gotta use the other one. Chad acknowledged him, oddly shaking his head and nodding assent at once. J.J. set Angie up with a workstation and a word template, and she started transcribing her meager, handwritten list of previous employers. The radio was set to KTRU, the Rice University station, presently offering up a slap fight between a skittering breakbeat and an atonal trumpet solo. After a while, J.J. checked back in. I don't mean to be nosy, but it says Olave Garden there, he said, pointing at the tangering iMac in front of Angie. Oh, thanks, she replied. He stood close to her. She took in his cologne... Not a brassy juvenile scent, maybe something recommended to him by a girlfriend, mellow and smart. Did you take off for school? You been trekking around Europe? JJ asked, noticing the date on the last entry. No, Angie sighed. I joined a cult. JJ waited for a cue. She was joking. The K-True DJ droned a list of very clever band names in a drowsy baritone. Angie finally smiled at him, and JJ forced a chuckle as he walked back behind the counter. After futzing around with various permutations in typeface, spacing, and justification, Angie deemed the result sufficiently professional in appearance. Another hour would be charged if she did not get to the printer soon, so Angie moved back to the counter. She observed JJ and Chad grappling with the color coil machine. The radio had paraded fitfully through humming shoegaze, twee string jazz, discordant motoric, and finally a hip hop inflected tune caught Angie's ear. A phrase repeated, which she knew came from a very rare vinyl record. Lali lo bubbles blow, crimson trees and golden bows. The phrase, sung by a children's chorus, was layered over a syncopated drum loop. It sounded bright and innocent, but Angie knew it was sampled from an old recording full of lyrics taken from a centuries-old text. Neither the well-meaning hippies who had appropriated the words for children's music, nor the clever bricolure who had snipped up the hippies' album, possessed any concept of their power. The record and the words it contained were prized among an underground of seekers. Some sought riches of the spirit, others merely of the earth. They were equally fanatical. Angie realized J.J. had been trying to get her attention, tapping her stack of resumes on the counter. J.J., Angie started with a smile, toothy and purposeful. You know who does this song? It's pretty catchy, right? Angie nodded, raising her eyebrows. DJ Guyena, he's local. He does some really cool stuff with samples and beats. He's from Houston, Angie interrupted. Yeah, he stays on the East End, a duplex on navigation. JJ pointed east somewhat uselessly. The place with the chicken in front. He throws parties there sometimes. Angie received her sheaf and paid JJ. With her change, he handed her a half-page flyer with some band names pasted over a cheekily ironic Tiger Beat photo of Hanson. My band's playing at Deep Fat Friday. Gonna be a tight show, come check it out. Sounds cool, said Angie, validating his hustle. Thanks. Angie walked hastily toward a metro bus stop at the corner. The sun was high, coaxing a nettlesome sweat to her skin. She deciphered from a faded map which bus to catch and sat in the gnomic shelter to wait. Angie looked at where she had first met Roger, at the Westheimer Street Festival. Each spring and fall, a throng gathered in the streets around Westheimer and Montrose, half normal people gawking and the other half punks and weirdos aching to be gawked at. Or simply enjoying a chance to fly their respective freaky flags. The former were largely from the suburbs, Friendswood or Kingwood or some other wood. Angie had driven in with Lucette and a couple other friends they were flunking out of U of H with, looking to hear some music, check out the boys, score free vegan grub from the Krishnas. Among the revelers was a man handing out tracts for his own spiritual movement. Cult was a despicable word, the C word. Roger did not abide it. They were his family, and they lived together for mutual elevation. Angie was an adult, as much as a 19-year-old could be, but emotionally brittle. Her brother had suffered a drug overdose, and the fallout had dominoed into her parents' divorce. Roger plucked Angie out of the crowd that day like a gullible peach. She learned that he wielded tremendous gifts when dealing with people, and his cunning was superhuman against the sufficiently vulnerable. Angie found herself over a dizzying fortnight letting Roger buy her coffee, then meeting the family, and moving to his property in Santa Fe, in a rural patch between Houston and Galveston. Commune was another C-word, but they all lived together, between a four-bedroom house and a few outbuildings. Roger had served in the army during Desert Storm. In the midst of a battle, he had taken refuge in a cave, where he discovered a clay jar holding six tablets. Roger was certain the ancient running on them had powerful secrets, and had devoted his life to interpreting and sharing them with a small but ardent assembly of followers. Angie enjoyed the first year of her new life. She quickly paired up with Marcus, who had been there a few years already. As he helped her adjust to life in the community, they became very close. Roger's doctrines were mercurial, subject to capricious deviations based on whatever text he was studying or the potency of the mushrooms he had used gathered from neighboring cow pastures. Roger came to breakfast one morning with his head shaved. He announced a revelation, a fantastic deepening of understanding of his holy tablets. He would now be called Alchemia, and their new goal was to seek the transmutation of their very essences – to become golden, radiant spirits. This was, somewhat unclearly, related to a more literal effort to convert lead and other base metals into actual gold. Whether as proclamations about alchemy were to be taken at face value, or as stirring metaphors, seemed to vary day to day. The spiritual aspect mandated a rigorous purity of lifestyle and thought. The family followed without question, but more than a little grumbling. Roger masterfully consoled any doubters, directing their energies back to the cause. A few decided to leave, despite his efforts, but the purification continued—shorn heads, a surf-like coat of dress, bland vegetarian food, and admonitions against any fleshly pleasures. Marcus was austerely compliant, and became distant from Angie. Nevertheless, she and the other faithful conformed to the steadily narrowing criteria. As Roger's dictates became more literal— Implements of chemistry appeared in the large garage where the family gathered. A sort of sacramental elixir was devised and shared, which seemed to contain tiny gold granules. Had indeed the lion been birthed from the stone? Were they simply being fed confectioners' glitter? The answer remained Roger's secret. Certain members were tasked to scour used bookstores, estate sales, and antique dealers, seeking specific relics containing alchemical knowledge. Books, paintings, or inscriptions on random objets d'art could contain data of immense importance. They were dutifully retrieved and brought to Roger for inspection. A computer was brought in for a few elite to access a burgeoning network of others with a common objective of exalting vulgar elements. According to rumor, one deleteriously inquisitive family member had used the computer to prove the holy tablets had no more value than accountant's letters. He was absent at breakfast one morning and never spoken of again. The day Angie decided to leave, the family were gathered around Alchemia, as he announced they would be moving to a new home. Specifically, the comet yolkov Aitsutin, which would pass near Earth a few months hence. Roger shortened the hyphenate to Yai. Their ennobled spirits were to be projected to comet comrade. This would require the spirits to leave their current residences, a most ineluctable commitment. Angie felt scared to leave her physical body, then ashamed for being cowardly, then deeply skeptical of Roger, then pitifully guilty for doubting him. Finally, after several turns of this spiral, she knew she had to leave the family. Angie would not die for Roger, it was that simple. One night she concealed a note where Marcus would find it, and set out toward the farm road with nothing but her peasant frock and boots. Angie couldn't understand her compulsion now, to seek out this record album, an artifact which might be sought by the same people she had escaped from. Would she bear it as an offering of penitence, begging to return to their good graces? Or would it please her to set it afire right before Roger's eyes? She only knew she had to visit this DJ Guyana to know it truly existed. The moaning air brakes of a metro bus startled Angie. She showed her pass, another gift from Lou, and boarded. The bus rumbled through downtown, gleaming in the afternoon sun, and passed warehouses painted with Chinese characters. One produced the aroma of fortune cookies, which was quickly replaced with a darker note of the Maxwell House plant looming in the distance. Angie spied her destination. A few blocks down, there was indeed a brick duplex with a chicken in front. Stepping off the bus, she saw it was an assemblage of cheery yellow squirt cans and other detritus. She imagined it was created by this DJ, a multidisciplinary. Angie stepped up to the porch. It was an old place, which a green sheet ad might tout as charming or cozy. Angie wondered what the rent was. She raised her curled hand to knock and noticed the door was slightly ajar. Peeking in, she saw an Ikea Kallax stuffed full of LPs. Other walls were similarly obscured it was positively a crate digger's abode. Angie knocked and waited. Hello, she hailed in full voice. Again, she rapped on the door with enough force to bruise a knuckle. Again, no reply. The heavy door creaked as Angie stepped inside, looking back to make sure she was not seen entering. The air was stale, and as Angie moved back in the residence, bore an evil smell. As she moved through the kitchen, a cockroach scurried from an uneaten bagel. Angie saw what was intended to be the dining area. At its center, altar-like, was a road case resting on loudspeakers, which held two turntables, mixer, and headphones. Cables snaked everywhere between microphones, an oversized computer tower, a rack of knob-studded effects units. On the floor, Angie saw a young man's body, thick-framed glasses askew on his slack face. Next to him, a record had been snapped in two. She picked up the halves and held them together, reading the label. Kids Canticle the sleeve would not be found. It had powerful words on it, important enough to kill for. One might not call it murder if one believed the deceased suffered in its current state. One might be doing a kindness to free a person's true form from its prison of flesh, blood, and rumpled pixies t-shirt. Angie confirmed the motive of this act, seeing tiny gold flecks and a bit of vomit in the poor fellow's prickly goatee. She retreated into sunlight beaming through a window in the back door. She peered out, seeing if any neighbors were around, wondering if a dog or cat was bereft of its owner. A yellow Datsun wagon sat in the narrow, cracked driveway behind the back porch. A plastic chicken head was affixed as a whimsical hood ornament. Angie returned to the body. Tears fell down her cheeks as she searched through pockets, wallet, car keys, and a microcassette recorder. His license said Jorge, but some business cards confirmed he was DJ Gaina. She worked the recorder, rewinding through mostly silent tape, stopping in a rodent squeak of voices. Pushing play, Angie heard sounds of struggle, along with Roger's voice. Our gratitude to the stars, for the treasure you given us this day. You will join us in luminous splendor, Brother Jorge. Just take it, take whatever you want, replied Jorge's voice. We release you from this debased vehicle, this unrefined husk you wither uselessly within. The rhetoric was painfully familiar. You will know your reward very soon. Angie dropped the recorder, sobbing. She picked up a phone mounted on the wall and dialed 911. As the operator answered, she panicked, dropping it, dangling on its cord and running out the back door. Angie climbed into the Datsun and pushed in the key. It started with the plaintive whooper wheel of a failing fan belt. The old wagon reminded Angie of a Reaganera Volvo she inherited in high school. It took a couple of tries, but she coordinated the clutch and shifter to escape the horrible scene. A police siren sounded in the distance as she fled. Angie retreated via the path the bus had used back to I-45 and headed south. She wanted Roger to know she had seen what he did, not as an enlightened leader, but as an insane corrupted human being. The yellow Datsun was nearly out of gas when Angie stopped at a fence on the edge of Roger's property. A commune for a cult, she thought with anger. A cult commune compound. Crazy, cocksucking cultists. She trudged down a gravel road toward the small cluster of buildings. The sun was nearing the horizon. Angie could see a tiny silver speck in the purple of the darkening sky. The comet Yai. Could it be true? Angie braced for a confrontation with one of the family, but none were about. Assuming they were at supper, she headed toward the oversized garage, which everyone called the barn. The main doors were closed, but she crept up to a side door, listening for voices. She heard nothing but a loose panel of corrugated tin rattling in the evening breeze. Slowly, Angie eased the door open, but her stealth was betrayed by a plaintive hinge squeak. Her presence had been announced. Welcome back, child. Angie froze in the doorway. Roger sat at the top of a tall ladder, turning awkwardly to face her. He was dressed in his alchemia costume, a robe of gilt tinsel, a grisly homage to the demise of alchemists in past ages. It was the uniform of a righteous soldier marching into the breach of degenerate ignorance, bracing himself to ascend above a clamorous fray into exultant glorious victory. Also, Angie observed a yellow fiber rope fastened to a metal roof beam above Roger's head, ending in a noose laying slackly around his neck. Next, Angie finally took in the complete interior of the barn. As the grisly tableau registered, she screamed. Shh! Roger started. You've returned on a most wondrous day. His followers had gathered and shared the elixir one last time. At the base of the ladder, six family members, the most obedient ones, lay like spokes, heads together and feet facing out. Each held one of the holy tablets in their stiff hands. At their feet lay six groups of three, their bodies forming triangles. The whole configuration resembled a snowflake or a crystal lattice with eerie radial symmetry. Beside each was an empty test tube. Angie's breath caught, she couldn't speak. Grimacing, she clapped her hands loudly to see if any of her former neighbors reacted. They're all gone. They have begun their splendid journey ahead of me, said Roger. Angie dropped, kneeling down by Marcus, and cried out in a hoarse wail. No one stirred. A petite androgyne next to Marcus was a new member, who Angie guessed was recruited to replace her. At the corners of her mouth and Marcus's were little gold flecks. Roger continued as Angie stood again. Aren't you disappointed? You ran away. You rejected this sublime opportunity. I handed you a shining torch and you doused it. I gave you treasure. And you chose mud. You dove back into the filth of this dark, doomed world. Stepping carefully around the macabre assemblage, Angie searched for the kid's canticle record sleeve. She finally regained the breath to speak. You killed him! The DJ! You killed him so you could finish the formula! His sacrifice is acknowledged. We praise his contribution to our departure. He will be welcomed at our ultimate destination. Angie spotted the record sleeve on a table heaped with flasks, pipes, and beakers. A section of the lyrics from the same song the late DJ Guyana had sampled was written on a chalkboard, among other phrases Angie knew were significant to Alchemia's patchwork mysticism. All these people, they're not going anywhere. They're dead that's all they're dead because of you angie yelled i failed you said roger his face contorting to a tragic mask i only wanted to elevate you to bring you into this triumphant flock angie picked up the cardboard square now useless until another comet came near earth or entirely useless rummage sale fodder never significant at all she read the words Childish nonsense, or a code to facilitate human transcendence? Tomorrow, said Roger, when the sun has risen, you won't be able to see the comet anymore. The train will be far from the station. The door closed. Angie looked again at the bodies on the ground and thought of their time together. Had her life been so great since she left them? Comet Comrade is still near enough, a sweet chariot ready to swing down for you said roger angie remained silent roger began to sing shiny comrade comet yai flying through the evening sky whereupon our souls will fly the time has come to say goodbye Angie found herself torn between her resolve of the previous hours and the strangely potent force of Roger's charisma. Tears fell onto the worn album cover. She felt fortunate not to be lying there next to Marcus, unbreathing. At the same time, she wondered if she had missed a fantastic opportunity to attach her consciousness to a cosmic vehicle to live with this family and exalted spiritual nobility. Each notion whirled in a hemisphere of her brain, repelled by the like pole of the other. What if I told you it's not too late? Roger asked. You and I, we could prepare for a different journey. We could gather a new family to take into the light of the truth beyond. Angie couldn't look at him. Confusion racked her. You were at the DJ's apartment? Will the police discover that? Angie thought of the yellow Dotson. Her reaction must have been clear to Roger. Let's begin a new adventure. There is another path we can walk together. Leave with me tonight. A new way will be revealed to us. Angie finally looked at him. His arms stretched toward her from the high ladder. Come, steady me. Angie dropped the kid's canticle sleeve on the ground and complied. Slowly, she walked to the center of the barn. Straddling one of the family, she planted her feet and gripped the sides of the ladder. Looking up again, she saw something different. Roger was scared. He had lost faith, chickened out. His arms still reaching out, he looked like Jorge's pile of yellow soda cans. He looked fucking ridiculous. Roger smiled, nodded, reached to slip the rope off his neck. Angie shrieked and heaved the ladder away. Roger's flailing legs nearly struck her as she stumbled back. The crashing ladder echoed like a fallen pine. Roger twitched and gagged. The chintzy robe flapped. After an interval, Angie could only hear the twisting fibers of the burdened rope. Place your hands behind your head, barked a voice behind Angie. I am Agent Wilson, Secret Service. You are under arrest for intent to conjure noble metals. Angie's hands shot up. Holy shit, exclaimed Agent Wilson, only in that moment fully grasping the ghastly scene before him. On the ground! Angie, slumping out of the garage in handcuffs, had little to say to Agent Wilson or the various others arriving on the compound. She could be charged with the theft of poor Jorge's chicken mobile. She might be accused of his murder. She was arguably an accessory to Roger's coercion of 24 souls and whatever plot to ruin the United States economy with magic gold the Secret Service had conceived. Angie ducked her head and folded herself into the back seat of Agent Wilson's car. He slammed the door, and Angie let her mind go blank in the darkness and silence. She looked again to the horizon, as the car window fogged with her breath. Comet Comrade glittered, more brightly now. In her mind, she bid the family farewell, whether their lives ended in the garage or persisted aboard the interplanetary vessel. Lucette might be happy to know, Angie thought, that she would not be sleeping on her couch for a while. You have been listening to Giblets of a Very Personal Nature by R. Nephi Smith narrated by the author Thank you for listening